You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday, the 25th of February. How are you, Anne? Hi, Kevin. How are you? Not too bad. Now, today we're speaking about um, inflation because Mm. inflation hasn't really reared its ugly head for quite some time. Uh, uh, (laughs) Interestingly, the last time it happened was in a big, big way was the mid-70s when oil prices went up. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, what happened when when the mongrel neoliberals took over the economy back in the 70s was on the back of an oil shock that pushed the prices of everything up due to the price of oil mm-hmm. going up, the neoliberals said, no, it's not oil, it's the, the price of labour. We need to squash the unions and bring wages under control because wages are causing this um, spiralling inflation. It was rubbish. Well, it, it, it might have been a small part of the problem, but it was only a small part of the problem as oil prices went up. But they said, oh, well, it must be the wages of the cause. So I'm the getting a deja vu here, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, so here we are. Um, Ukraine's in trouble. The, the prices are going out of control. And there's been a lot of um, government spending into the economy through COVID. So now people are talking about inflation again because it's going up a little bit. I hear in the US it went up to around 6 or 7% at one point. So they're going to blame that. This is the big debate. I find macroeconomics, once you start paying attention, it's quite fun because there is never a dull moment. Depends on your definition of dull. Well, if you like a good stouch, get into macroeconomics yeah. because at the moment they are arguing bitterly about what is causing this latest round of inflation. And, of course, the mainstream... Economists are doing what you're describing they did back in the 70s. So they're rehashing their old argument that it is the increase in wages that is causing inflation. Uh, Also, the increase in government spending into the economy. Government should stay out of the economy, they argue, and should not spend into the economy because if they do, it'll be inflationary. Uh, We follow the heterodox economists, including Professor Bill Mitchell, who has a blog online. And so you can just Google Bill Mitchell blog and you'll find him at bilbo.economicoutlook.net. And so he's pretty much updating his blog daily. And um, it's great to see him in there, Yeah, well, <laughs> in the boxing ring. <laughs> we love Bill because, because talk about somebody who pays attention to the, the data like, and he understands what the data means. They're not just meaningless numbers to him. And I've got a quote from Bill here where he says in this blog post that we've both read, the wages side is not driving any inflationary pressures. So he's in there saying the complete opposite. Yeah. So this is from from the Bilbo blog on Thursday, February the 24th, which is yesterday. Australia workers endure ongoing real wage cuts as corporate profits soar. And he said the ABS released the latest Wage Price Index Australia for the December quarter 2021. The Wage Price Index data shows that nominal wages growth remained modest to say the least. The data shows that the significant cuts to workers' purchasing power continue and, in my view, constitute a national emergency. While the Conservatives are railing about inflation now and looking to target workers' wages, further cuts, the evidence is the wages side is not driving any inflationary pressures. The opposite is the case. 
the business sector as a whole thinks it is clever to oppose wages growth and the banks love that because they can foist more debt onto households Ooh. to maintain their consumption and yeah. expenditure. Can we stop there? Sure. That's a huge point and that's actually one I hadn't really thought about until I read this article. So what we understand is that the business community likes to blame inflation on wages because this gives them a grand excuse to continue their suppression of wages. So they're complaining that it's increasing their costs and therefore it's going to drive inflation. But what I didn't realise that Bill was pointing out here is that the banks also like to suppress wages. And I'm like, well, how does that work? You know, what's in it for them? And then, of course, when you think about it, if the price of stuff is going up, but workers are not getting any more money to buy the stuff and buy the things they need, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to have to use their credit cards. They take out a loan. They've got to take out a loan. What's happened is that workers are now forced to borrow money to maintain standards. Uh, the standard of living. Yeah. House prices keep going up. They need to borrow to buy a house. As everything else rises, they need to borrow because they're not earning in real terms as much as they used to. So we, we now have a financial capitalist system. Yes, where... I've heard it called the financialization of capitalism. Yeah. This is the era of capitalism that we are in. And what's more, it's done incrementally, so you, mm. you barely notice it. You get a small pay rise. It doesn't keep up with inflation, but you get a small pay rise, therefore you think you're better off. But in real terms, you're not. And unless you have all the data to understand why you're not better off, it mm. feels like you're still in the game when in fact you're falling just a little bit further behind day by day, week by week. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Okay, so I'm going to just keep reading. Uh, It is clear that the public sector wage caps, state and federal, have created an environment where private sector wage rises are being constrained independently of the private labour market. So what he's saying there is that there's wage caps in the public sector and that's affecting... Uh, the private sector, because they're following suit. In the December quarter, December quarter of last year, uh, while nominal wages growth ticked up slightly, 2.23 to 2.3%, the inflation rate remained well above the wages growth, which meant the real purchasing power continued to fall. So inflation is rising more than wages. Mm -hmm. So you can't buy as as much as you used to. Uh, Overall, the record since 2013 has been appalling. The trend is towards zero real wages growth. Now, he refers to a lot of um, uh, graphs and, and which explain the data. Right. I can't show the, the views, the, the graphs. <laughs> so, so we have to... Sounds like to me they'll be going down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the results for the December quarter 2021 tell us that for most of 2021, 20, uh, real wages have been falling in Australia. And this has been a trend that's been going on since mm. the mid-70s. Yes. The whole point of talking about what's been going on for the past few decades is to say that the context for this argument about whether wages are rising at the moment and whether they're causing inflation, this is this ongoing huge battle that's been going on ever since we had capitalism over whether we are going to give the fruits of increased productivity to the workers or whether we're going to give it to the bosses. You'll see these discussions, they'll call it the wage share of the national incomes. Whenever you hear anything about wages growth or the rate of wages growth or wage share, just prick your ears up, pay attention, because you know that this is where the battle lines are being drawn. (laughs) 
Okay, so I'm going to just read a little bit further here. Another relationship that is important is the relationship between movements in real wages and productivity. Mm-hmm. Historically, for periods which data is available, rising productivity growth was shared out to workers in the form of improvements in real living standards. Yep, yep. When he says historically, he's talking particularly about that post-war period from 45 to 75. In effect, productivity growth provides the space for nominal wages to grow without promoting cost-push inflationary pressures. There is also an equity construct that is important. If real wages are keeping pace with productivity growth, then the share of wages in national income remains constant. What he's getting at there is that if if wages are increasing at the rate that productivity is increasing... We have an equitable distribution of the national income. Yeah, so the reason you want to pay attention to this wages share is that it sits behind what we're seeing, which is this increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots. So more and more inequality that we've seen since the 1970s that you're talking about, one of the mechanisms feeding into that is this share of wages and productivity growth. It doesn't make much difference which deflator is used to adjust the nominal hourly WP series. That's really economic <laughs> oh, talk there. So I'm just going to let that one go over the top. And nor does it matter much if we use the national accounts measure of wages. Okay, so this is the important bit. Mm. But from 1997 to 2021, the real hourly wage index has grown by only 12.2% and falling. So, mm. so it's it's less. going to be less and less while the hourly productivity index has grown by 35.3%. Wow. So productivity has risen three times as much as the uh, wage growth. So it's not being shared. So not only has real wages growth turned negative over the last year or so, but the gap between real wages growth and productivity growth continues to widen. So where does the real income that workers lose by being unable to gain real wages growth in the line uh, with productivity growth? Answer, mostly to profits. Mm -hmm. Who gets the profits? Well, not the workers. Not the workers. I would guess some corporations and their shareholders and the banks. Yeah. He goes through in quite some detail on a daily basis in his blog. He just sort of wakes up the morning and goes, what's on top of my head? And he pulls out all this data and he goes, blah, 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 blah. Fighting the good fight for us, thank goodness, because I couldn't make head nor tail of all of this. Yeah, now he expands on this um, a little Mm. bit more. He says, further, higher rates of spending driven by real wages growth can underpin new activity uh, and jobs, which absorbs the workers' lost to the productivity growth elsewhere in the economy. One supports the other. Good wages and you can afford to buy stuff. Then that increases the amount of business that's being done, which improves the profits of the business, and you have this nice relationship. There's another thing he said that really jumped out at me, which is there can be no sustained recovery for the economy post-COVID without significant increases in the current rate of wages growth. So what that says to me is that the people who are managing the economy, the coalition government, etc., would rather cut off their noses to spite their face. They would rather slow down the economy than give um, workers a fair share. There's a very dangerous presumption <laughs> you're making there, Anne, and that is that they know what they're doing and they don't know what they're doing. This is the point. Their ideology, which is which is written pretty much by Milton Friedman and the uh, yes. and the neoliberals, flies in the face of logic. Back to your point where they know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I will read again from Bill to back up my argument that maybe they might know what they're doing because Bill comes to this conclusion and he says, the problem is that the federal government supports wage suppression because that attracts funding for the conservatives from the corporate lobbies which help them to stay in power. 
So again, there's this issue of what is government's most, its primary objective is to stay in power. How is it going to do that? To get re-elected by appeasing its donors. And and the donors are looking at this very short-term, simplistic uh, economic model. Mm. What I'm seeing with the conservative ideology is it's a really one or two step approach. Mm. If I cut wages, I will increase my profits. Yes. Yeah, what happens after that? You know, uh-huh. have you thought this through? <laughs> so then all your workers are poor and they can't afford to buy anything. Oh, they can't think that far ahead. They're, they're oh, just thinking yeah. of this really short term, oh, annoying. Well, before you blow a gasket over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a chat with Darren Quinn the end of last year and he is very active in the social media space about modern monetary theory and all of this macroeconomics. I certainly need to um, cool down. I might go and stand in the fridge for a bit. Um, uh, We'll be back shortly. I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR. Okay, let's have a, a listen to your interview with Darren Quinn. Well, today I am so pleased to be able to speak with someone who I've been wanting to chat with for a while because he is so prominent in the online MMT community. And that person is one Darren Quinn. So welcome to the show, Darren. Thank you, Erin. Lovely to be here. You certainly are one of those people who have a real drive to educate people about modern monetary theory, this form of macroeconomics that Kevin and I follow on this show. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you do online and just let people know where you would recommend they go online to learn a bit more about modern monetary theory. I've um, written a blog on modern money at modernmoney.wordpress.com. I probably started in 2010. It existed before Bill Mitchell's and Randy Ray's textbook. It's mostly a copy and paste of Bill Mitchell's work. So copyright Bill Mitchell's, not mine. Before modern monetary theory was too well known, I discovered it via Peter Martin, the economic journalist, who linked Mm. me to Bill Mitchell's blog. So on my modernmoney.wordpress.com site, plug, is the first FAQ's I've got about 24 commonly asked, frequently asked questions that I find a lot of beginners and lay people and some with passing economic knowledge might have. You're also connected with Australian Real Progressives. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Australian Real Progressives is something I'm still trying to get off the ground, really. I'm actually looking for contributors, whether that be in video, writing, if you want to do interpretive dance, if necessary. (laughs) So what was it that got you so interested in modern monetary theory that you have spent so much time creating online channels and I think you also moderate a Facebook page? Tell us your MMT origin story. Well, it actually starts with employment or in my case, unemployment. And we often heard the lifters and leaners and job stobs arguments throughout the media through most of our lives. Mm -hmm. But when I discovered modern monetary theory and read the details, oh, not our fault. It's technically the government's fault. They've got a responsibility to provide everyone with a job. Mm. Only technically, because um, you realise there's more people unemployed than jobs advertised or even out there. It's not your fault. So that's where I really began. So I followed a link from 
well, it would have been 2009, on Club Troppo's missing links to, as I mentioned earlier, Peter Martins, the economic journalist. He was writing something about New Start, as it was called then, or Job Seeker as it is now, and that linked to Bill Mitchell's blog. And I voraciously read 99% of that at the time. My story is similar. I, I came to an understanding of modern monetary theory through the Unemployed Workers' Union who were talking about it. And it is so liberating when you realise that there is a systemic reason why unemployment exists and it has to do with how the government is managing the macro economy. So I often think that your personal history will tell you why you don't have a job, but it's modern monetary theory that tells you why there isn't a job out there to go to. That's a good way to put it. How long did it take you to get through reading of Bill's blog? Because I remember we had Andrew Shergwin on our show and he was describing how it took him about six months. <laughs> Before I fully accepted modern monetary theory, or as Randall Ray in the US calls it, just modern money theory, mm-hmm. it was about one to two years before mm. I was fully on board. Like a lot of people that don't come from originally from an economics background, I had a lot of difficulty with the um, accounting at the Reserve Bank level. I still don't think I've got my head around that. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your next step then after reading Bill's blog? Well, then I discovered Warren Mosler, Stephanie Kelton and a number of the others. And around roughly the same time, the Modern Money Network began. Mm, And tell me about them. That's a US not-for-profit group, I think. Basically, it's the younger generations of modern money enthusiasts, including Rowan Gray and Nathan Tankish and many others. They put on a number of seminars in 2013, and they have a lot of their seminars up on YouTube. Well worth checking out. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. I realised Unemployment was a deliberate policy set up to keep many Australians unemployed and then the stigmatising effects of saying they're not trying hard enough, etc. As you would have used or heard, the story of 100 dogs and 95 bones. Tell us the story of the 100 dogs because we've actually never told it on this show before. Uh, The short version is if you have 100 dogs that are trained to find 95 bones, you're always going to have at least five dogs without a bone. So they implement forms of training for the dogs and tests for the dogs that weren't coming back with a bone. But no matter what they did, there was still always at least five dogs coming back without a bone and not necessarily the same dogs either. And that's the way the employment slash unemployment system is set up. The irony is we call 5% unemployment full employment. Yes, that is one of the great Orwellian uses of language. (laughs) Yes. The government is deliberately not providing enough jobs for everyone who wants a job. So no matter how much you whip or train the dogs, you're never going to get 100% employment. I always call it a form of institutional cruelty to be whipping the unemployed to get work because it's actually impossible for them to find work if there's no work out there. I think it's the difference between an individualist and a collective philosophy, like it's your fault, your fault, but it's the system. Look, I'm very lucky myself with my long-term history that I haven't resorted to crime, drugs, etc. And it's so easy to see how people can slip down that slope. All through lack of having uh, access into the economy via a job. It's the very thing that provides inclusion. And as I said, I've been unemployed for a while and a guaranteed job with decent wages and benefits sounds good to me. And that's my starting point. That was the point that spoke to me. So I thought you were the perfect person 
to have a chat to about where newbies to MMT might go astray uh, in their thinking. People will get very excited when they realise things like taxpayer money is actually not funding social security payments and they'll get all excited like me and want to run around and tell people about MMT. But then you can also come into a few classic traps. So I thought we might just run through some of those with you and you could help us understand some of those subtleties. The first one that I was thinking about was that when MMT talks about the capacity of the currency issuer, the federal government can never run out of Australian dollars. Certainly that's different for state governments. Then people start to think, oh, well, that just sounds like printing money. And of course, the MMT economists are always saying that it's not a good idea to talk about printing money. I used to wonder why are they being so pedantic about that? (laughs) Well, first of all, I find the phrase printing money very misleading. The very word itself is misleading. Economists use it different to lay people. So I'll start with uh, what do you think the term printing money means? Um, I literally imagine a printer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and somebody presses the print button. Printing money. Printing money. Print money to just spend left, right, and center. Print money without limits. You can spend and spend and spend. And then I imagine that the money is somehow going into the economy, sort of in an endless stream somehow, but I'm not sure how. <laughs> Okay, that's very good. Okay. To me, just the phrase printing money, done, you've printed money. So that doesn't tell me anything. But mm. you added and into the economy, so you mean it's been spent. You've bought things. And, yes, that is typically what people mean by printing money. However, that's the catch. Printing is the same as spending. That's what it's always been. We don't typically print money like that these days. We just use electronic ledgers, accountings. As a lot of the MMT scholars say, we keystroke, but all spending by all governments at all times has always been done that way. Mm. So we haven't changed anything. When the economists are talking about printing money, they're including in that an idea of spending. So currency creation happens as a spending operation, not as a printing operation. (laughs) That's correct. It's what I would refer to as a false frame. The way we Mm -hmm. talk about something leads to the way we further think about it Mm -hmm. and it sets it up for a completely, well, a lie, basically. It's really interesting with modern monetary theory how you end up really having to use language in a very careful, specific way. Like to use a classic example we hear about from the MMT point of view, taxpayers don't fund spending. That's true. But you look at it a certain way, they kind of do. Because why are we taxing? to move money out of the economy to give the government room to spend. It's what uh, a lot of economists call fiscal space, if you like, but it's not a dollar-for-dollar translation, and Mm. it's not actually a funding mechanism. So if you use it as a rule of thumb, you're kind of right. It's more of a, um, a custom. Okay. And we've taken that custom as gospel. And that's going on to another one of the classic newbie mistakes People run around saying, well, taxes don't fund government spending, but if the government overspends spending more than the uh, resources, or you can't spend more than what you have in the way of resources, 
But the mistake newbies make is then to translate that into a policy position, which says, well, if inflation's starting to look like it's taking off, we'll just tax people. So you're saying the argument people are making is we just need to tax more? Mm. In some cases, I'll agree with them. I like to call it um, spending room, taxing, making room for spending room. It's about possible claims on resources. One of the arguments we often hear is that MMT is an anti-tax program for the rich. We don't need to tax the rich. We absolutely do need to tax the rich for their power and influence and Mm. potential inflationary risk. If they spend all their money at once, where's the resources for you and I? But if they're not spending it, they're not claiming any resources. So the money that the rich have in their bank accounts, it is a potentially political risk because they can use that money to buy, to buy off politicians. Now, that surely would not happen. <laughs> I don't know, Anne. Look at all these series of rorts we've had over the past year. <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing with MMT. It can be very simple in one way where you just understand that uh, the government faces no financial constraints. But then once you start digging in, you can sort of go down all sorts of rabbit holes. Yes, you can, but the key, as always, is to remember it faces real constraints. That's real resources. That's land, labour, machinery, equipment, factories, etc. So that's the second main principle, isn't it, of modern monetary theory? And on a related note, inflation, as we often talk about, we always think of it as a monetary phenomenon. No, it's a real resources phenomenon and the distribution of those real resources. We talked earlier about rich people, like they've got a claim on resources, but they don't have them till they've spent their money. But if they spend all their money, where are you and I going to get it from? Because they've just bought everything. And <laughs> thus you have inflation, not about the money. That's such an important point. It's not the money, honey. <laughs> There's a great slogan. And when an MMT newbie says, if we have inflation, all we have to do is tax people. And then, of course, people will say, well, politicians are never going to do that because the last thing they want to do is upset the electorate with more taxes. Yes. What they don't realise is our current taxations, as they exist, form part of what all economists call automatic stabilisers, which just Mm -hmm. means inflation takes off, a higher taxation rate kicks in, which might, not necessarily, But hopefully if you're progressive and the progressive tax rates are set correctly, you might not need to change a thing. Mm, That's such a great insight, isn't it? So this thing called an automatic stabiliser is a kind of tax where no politician actually has to make a decision that's going to upset anyone who's going to vote for them. (laughs) And one of the broad insights of MMT is we want to introduce more forms of automatic stabilisers. So what would be an example of that? The job guarantee is one, because when the economy expands, people leave the job guarantee, which is set at a minimum wage, into the private sector, which has higher wages and better benefits. And when the economy shrinks, into the job guarantee they go. So it's like your pool of people in the job guarantee, that's expanding and contracting in the opposite way that the economy is expanding and contracting. Exactly. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. So a lot of people new to modern monetary theory, one of the things they hear to start with is the money story. 
And this story is told really well by Warren Mosler, who is in America and was one of the founders of modern monetary theory. And of course, the money story is this idea that uh, an authority wants the private sector to do stuff for them. And how is it going to get people to do stuff? Well, it's going to require them to earn dollars. And how do you inspire people to go and earn dollars? Well, you tax them. And so the only way you can require people to do that is if you are an authority that has the ability to make people's life a misery (laughs) if they don't pay their taxes. So Warren uses the classic example of the hut tax in Africa. Yes. When people hear the money story, and I had this reaction myself a little bit, was I thought, oh, no, the monetary system is such a coercive system at its base. For people who already feel like money is the root of all evil, (laughs) in that case, we really need to get rid of the monetary system. And I was just wondering, what would you say to the newbie who reacts that way? Well, I'd say the rules of law are coercion, but we do that to protect everyone. It's about our security, whether it's security of the person, security of your health, financial security. Everything's coercive. Mm. It's just the rule of law. So we can see monetary systems as part of the rule of law. Yeah, part of the system, if you like, which brings us back to that systemic discussion. I guess you will get people out there who say we should get rid of the legal system because it's coercive. (laughs) On that, there's two sorts of things you can do. There's anarchy, which means without a leader which means resolve things amongst yourselves in the group. However, under our current system, we can sort of have anarchy with the leader. I mean, democratic decisions. And we resolve things by setting these rules in place, which takes us straight back to laws. Mm. So we come back to then how do the decisions get made? I like to think of it as applied MMT. MMT is a systemic analysis of the currency system as it exists. That is all it is. But once you gain that understanding, you can apply it. You're you're using MMT whether you know it or not. Absolutely. MMT has always existed. It's just never been presented to the public in this way. What we broadly call neoliberalism is what I would call applied right-wing MMT. (laughs) Reaganomics, Thatchonomics, or in Australia in the Accord years, Hawke and Keating. Applied MMT. Applied right-wing MMT, a particular right-wing applied MMT. That brings me to another question which newbies can have difficulty getting their heads around. When we're saying that MMT is just a description of how the economy works or how the monetary system works, I certainly walked around for a number of years, I would say now, telling people, well, MMT is just a description. We're already there. It's just how the economy works. But then I did hear Professor Bill Mitchell say, well, there's more to MMT than it just being descriptive. And there's a reason it's called modern monetary theory, because there is some theory in there as well. It's not just a descriptive framework, it's a theoretical framework. And that that was a distinction that got lost on me for quite some time, and I'm still actually trying to grapple with that. Well, the word theory is used in many different ways. I've always referred to the word theory in modern monetary theory as the same as a scientific theory, like the theory of relativity. We don't dispute that, but the way Bill's using it there is as a theory of behaviour. Just because you tell someone something has happened, that doesn't tell you anything. Why has it happened? That Mm. is the theory. 
So he's looking for the behavioural theory. Why have we suddenly seen a rise in disposable household income in the last couple of months? It's because mm. of all the extra things the government put in place. Right. So it has explanatory value is what you're saying? Yes. Because if it was just a description, we're not saying much at all. We're saying mm. it's double entry accounting. And that's it. <laughs> that's a criticism I often hear coming at modern monetary theory. People will say, well, you're just talking national accounting. You're not telling us anything. Well, you've got to understand that first. And I like the way Stephanie Kelton puts it. Basically, someone else's deficit is someone else's surplus. And she divides it into three categories, which is your trade deficit, which is how much we're buying from overseas, yours, mine, balance that's in our banks, all added up, and the government's, which is what they've spent. And if you add all three together, well, they're coming out equal. So what you're talking about there, which, you know, we, we have been a bit remiss on this show. We haven't probably looked into what you're talking about, the sectoral balances. It's a graph. And when I see it, I always think of fish bones. And you just look at the bones and the top bone equals the bottom bone sort of thing. And what they're showing is that there's this mirror image going on between government spending and private spending. Absolutely. Um, I think of it as a model myself, but people just tell you it's national accounting, as you said, and it is. There's only three ways to put the private sector, that's me and you, if you like, to get into surplus. Like, so we've got money to spend and all those sorts of things. We mm. can run a government deficit and a trade surplus. If we're running a trade surplus, we are exporting, is that right, more than we're importing? Yes. So if we're exporting more than we're importing, that means there's money coming into the economy from the foreign sector. There is. Um, and there are only three situations so that all the rest of us are not going into debt. <laughs> yes. Or we run a government surplus, but it has to be less than the trade surplus. Or we can run a government deficit greater than a trade deficit. In other words, we can spend more than we're buying from overseas. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org. So one of the things that MMT newbies get all excited about, and I know I did, was discovering how money is created. Because it does take a little bit of explaining to describe the currency issuing capacity and to describe this thing called monetary sovereignty, which is, you know, the capacity of the government to spend. What gets lost in that explanation often is the role of banks in the creation of so-called money. And so what you'll often hear, especially from within what we might call the heterodox economic community, people who question the orthodox economics, they have hit upon this phenomenon that banks have got something to do with creating money. And then they'll often uh, say to MMT, you're not recognising the role of banks and so you don't have a full picture. Well, first I would respond that they are mistaken. <laughs> MMT definitely includes the banking sector. The banking sector is, to bring in another theory's name, is described by circuit theory. Steve Keane is the most prominent member of that. All MMT does is add the nation state to circuit theory. Money is an IOU. It's a debt or a credit because debt and credit are the same thing depending on who's holding. The I is going to be the debtor and the U is going to be the creditor. Exactly. It's no different and to say... If you 
knitted me a vest and I fixed your computer. Money mm. just facilitates that transaction in a different way. And I like to think it facilitates it between strangers rather than people that know each other. That gets back to this idea of when you've got a lot of people in your society and not everyone's going to know everyone. So to facilitate the complexity of all the interactions, you use money. That's the use of a monetary system. Exactly. Exactly that. As Hyman Minsky, a late great economist, taught us, anyone can create money. You and I can create money. We won't call it that, but that's essentially what a credit or an IOU is. But mm-hmm. if we put it down on a piece of paper, we're going to have a bit of trouble getting the banks to accept it, an IOU written on a piece of paper. But that's the catch. Banks write IOUs to each other and you and me, but the next authority up settles the debt, clears the debt. Now, the banks do that with the state, the government, which is who runs the central bank. The central bank is the bank of the banks, the RBA in our case. What we're saying is that modern monetary theory does include the banking system in its picture? Yes. Like picture a pyramid with the central bank at top, then picture all your banks underneath the central bank, the banks that are their accounts with the central bank or the government. Then underneath the banks, picture all your businesses, businesses settle their accounts with the banks, picture your households where you and I live, like put that on my account for me at a business place. Well, the business has got your IOU and you settle at the end of the whatever period. As Minsky said, anyone can create money, but it's always settled at the next level up. So picture a pyramid. I never understood why they used the pyramid analogy. Now I do. That's great. I've just learned something. Sometimes people will know enough to know about Keynesian economics and they will have heard of John Maynard Keynes, who is sometimes called the father of macroeconomics. And one of the things was he understood how you pay to prosecute a world war. And so sometimes people who know this part of the economic history, they will say, well, MMT is just Keynesianism with a job guarantee, (laughs) so that MMT doesn't really tell us all that much new. I would say the central insight of MMT, if you wanted to boil it down, is the automatic stabilisers that we mentioned earlier, which is just that everything, every part of the economy is ran on a little thing called buffer stuffs. Mm. Yeah, business inventory, exact same thing. If inventory is rising, it could be they're not selling anything or we could be in a boom. It could be a recession or a boom. We don't know, but that's what the buffer stuff is. So we can manage the economy on any number of automatic stabilizers, but the most important one is human well-being, hence the job guarantee. So I wouldn't say it's just Keynesian economics. It is and it isn't, but it's Keynesian economics done correctly, not the way we're taught in the media and the narrative we've heard over the past 50 years. And, of course, Keynes talked about aggregate demand and not enough aggregate demand or not enough spending causing unemployment but MMT drills down one step further and says well it's actually the existence of a a monetary system itself which causes unemployment and if the government hasn't done enough spending using that money then you get that Keynesian uh, phenomenon. And also there's no targeting of that spending it's what we call pump priming there's no targeting it's just throw some money out there and see what happens. Whereas the MMT and post-Keynesian, possibly the institutional schools, would say, target your spending. Can you think of the top of your head, a kind of spending that would be badly targeted and a kind of spending that would be well targeted? 
Well, we don't need to look far for bad spending. We can just look at the number of torch rods and all the other rods we've had in the last 12 months. And it also proves we don't need to tax people first. And for good spending, the um, rise in job seeker and the implementation of JobKeeper were good targeted spending, though JobKeeper was poorly designed, but that's a whole other institutional story. <laughs> but if we weren't saying something new to the public at large, why haven't we been presented with this story over the past 50 years? Where, where are the media commentators, politicians, economic talking heads, etc., saying this to us? They haven't been. If MMT has nothing to add, then why have we not been talking about all these things for the last 50 years? That's exactly it. Darren, I really appreciate your time today. And if people out there see your name on the Facebook pages in the MMT groups, they'll know that they can rely on the information that's coming from you because you have spent a lot of time digesting this material as a non-economist. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your kind words. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But... Don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au I so enjoyed my little chat with Darren. And, you know, it was talking with him that for the first time that I understood why the modern monetary theory economists don't like to talk about printing money. And I always thought they were just being pedantic because these days the form that the money takes is mostly in digital form. So only about 3% of the money that's circulating in the economy comes out in notes and coins. So I was thinking, oh, well, they don't like printing money because it's usually in digital form. But what I realized talking with Darren is they don't like using that because, as Darren said, it's a false frame. In other words, it leads you in the wrong direction. So when a modern money economist says that the Australian federal government can never run out of Australian dollars, and when you hear that, if you imagine then that there's this printer just printing endless $10 notes, you've actually missed the point. <laughs> yeah. What the economists are saying when the Australian federal government can never run out of Australian dollars is that they're talking about the theoretical capacity of the federal government to make dollars. So in theory, it can make an infinite amount just by adding zeros into a spreadsheet or whatever. So if you're thinking about printing money, you're still trapped in this idea that money is a physical object, that it's a thing. That it's a finite resource. Yeah. Yeah, the the concept I like is is when uh, rather than referring to creating money, it's like keeping score. To think of a scorekeeper in a football game. This will be a lesson for young kids at home. Oh, a goal is the only thing that matters. Here we go, Buddy Franklin for twelve, thirteen, thirteen. <laughs> He's kicked thirteen on the siren. 
It's a one-point ball game. Oh, will it bounce? The stadium holds its breath. It's a goal. It's a goal. Oh. Sensational play. What a magnificent run. Can he cap it off with a goal? Oh, yes, he can. Oh. One of the goals of the year. The goal of the year. Yes. He's got the most impossible goal. Incredible goal. Unbelievable goal. Goal of the century. And they win by five and everyone is completely exhausted. Four seconds, three seconds, two seconds. Listen to the crowd. A better way of thinking about money is to think of a scorekeeper in a football game. Then you've moved into thinking of money as an abstract, as a um, actually as counting. Which, which is what it is. A dollar has no intrinsic value. It's, it's, its value is what you can get for it. And in our economy, it's about a litre of milk. And the other part of the false frame that talking about printing money keeps you in is it completely misses the idea that when the government creates money, it is at the same time. It is the same activity. It is also spending money. So the government never creates money without spending the money. For example... <laughs> Back in those halcyon days when they pretty much doubled the unemployment payments overnight, the amount of unemployment that you get. When the new start turned, turned into, into job, job seeker, seeker and they added the COVID supplement. Right. So they topped it up with the COVID supplement effectively to the poverty line. What the government was doing then was it was not just throwing, it wasn't just like throwing money out the window. It was targeting the spending to a very specific part of the economy. So it had a spending goal in mind. And that goal was to maintain the spending power of unemployed people. Well, they are the the most effective way to uh, to get people to spend into the economy is to target people who need the most. Mm. And, and the people who are living on half the poverty line need real things. So by, by doubling their the amount of money that they received, mm. you're assured that that money is going to turn into activity That's for right. business. Whereas if you gave that to rich people, they'll just mm-hmm. shove, they'll, they'll hoard That's it right. away. So they wanted to keep the consumption levels up in the yep. economy. They did not do it because they care about unemployed people. <laughs> no. As we saw, they immediately took the COVID supplement away and the payments went back down to half the poverty line. So that's what you're missing out if you're thinking of the money creation as a printing operation. You really need to think of it as a spending operation that's an abstract thing that's just a matter of keeping score through numbers. Yeah, yeah, no, and, that, and that's actually clarified it in my mind um, for the first time in a while as well. If you talk about printing money, that's just paper. It's a, a big bunch of paper and it doesn't do anything. It just sits there. Mm. When the government creates currency, but it doesn't sit anywhere. It goes into uh, an account which is then transferred into spending. Yes. So the government never just creates money and sticks it in an account for a rainy day. No. <laughs> it just no. doesn't do that. It's, it's balance pretty much sits <laughs> at zero. I remember uh, when Howard sold Telstra, he had a future fund, mm. and it was like he had a positive account in the government's um, balance. Like like they had a bank account with mm-hmm. um you know however much they sold Telstra for savings account there that was just rubbish yep. like like but but that's the kind of concept that people have they think that there's a finite amount mm-hmm. of currency available to the government storing it up somewhere and they're storing it up somewhere they have a they're bank not. account it's not the case they, they don't have a, a balance they just have the capacity to, to instruct the RBA to when they want to whenever spend. they need it infinite. that's right and I'm going to tell you this story um. 
because it reminds me of when I was in Seattle and I was living in America there when the Occupy movement was happening. Right. And so we were downtown and there was some protests happening and the anarchists did this little performance event, which I had no idea was going to happen, but people were started looking up. So I'm looking up too. And we can see these dollar notes floating in the sky, raining down on us. Right. And it was the anarchists up on about like the 10th floor of one of these skyscrapers. And they're throwing dollar bills out the window. Real, real dollar bills? Yeah. I think it was their way of saying, people, we've had this GFC. It's, it's screwing up everyone's lives. Can we please remember that money is just worthless bits of paper? And what I realize now is that they were completely misunderstanding what money is. Yeah. It's not the bits of paper. It is the legal structures and the accounting structures that sit behind and drive the value of those bits of paper. They should have thrown um, a litre milk, a bottle of cartons of milk. <laughs> <laughs> they should have thrown real resources real out of resources, the window. Real resources, <laughs> tomatoes or something. You know, it's, it's like this is what you get for your dollar. You know? Yeah, so that was exactly the same mistake that Milton Friedman, who's on the other side of politics, made, because he has this whole idea of explaining what money and spending is by throwing it out of a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a complete misconception of it being a real resource when it's not. That's just actually been a helpful conversation for me, yeah, to, to, um, Oh, yeah, it has nice because, like, I kind of, I kind of had that uh, that impression that that uh, money isn't a real thing. But then you sort of think that it is because I've got a dollar coin in my pocket and mm. it feels like a real thing. But it's only a representation of Something a liter else. of milk of that's some right. tomatoes. That's that's all it is, and and it's not a real thing in itself. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back here on Three CR Community Radio. Now, I was hoping that we were going to speak um, a little more about taxation, but we're running out of time. But I will just say I get very frustrated when I hear taxpayers' money being used oh. for this and taxpayers. Now, I'm just going to briefly touch on this. Yes. It's not taxpayers' money. It is government money. The government creates the currency. Mm -hmm. The government creates the token which it uses to keep score. Mm-hmm. That doesn't come from your eye. We, I, I can't create currency. Uh, you can't create currency. We, we use the currency. So it's never taxpayers' money. It's always government money that pays for government services. Mm -hmm. Taxpayers' money is just an accounting tool that's used for some bizarre reason that we don't have time to talk about right now. It has a, has a few reasons. You've touched on a couple of them. But um, from now on, you, I, and all our listeners need to pull everybody up every time they say, <laughs> That's taxpayers' money can't be used. It's not taxpayers' no, money. No, no, it's public money. Public money. Anyway, we've got to go, and uh, we'll we'll speak again in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for a, a lovely show, Anne. I, yeah, I likewise, yourself. Kevin. Okay, till see next time. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on Three CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself, so if you've got all the pleasure... That, what, I had no I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. So we have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.